0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of the NSAC Coffee Hour interview series. In this interview series, we hope to learn from a broad range of people closely associated with STEM, PhD, life. Professors, scientists, alumni, staff, administrators, and others. The goal is to get to know the fascinating journeys, stories, and experiences that got these people where they are today. In this week's episode, I had the absolute privilege to interview Dr. Maritz de Ritter, who is currently a senior manager at Aerojet Rocketdyne. Our fascinating conversation covered his journey from Purdue University to working at SpaceX with Elon Musk, accepting a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to develop rocket engines at Virgin Galactic and Orbital, and then moving to Aerojet Rocketdyne for the next chapter of his amazing life. Without further ado, here's the interview. I took a look through your kind of LinkedIn profile, right? To to try to get an idea of of how your career has sort of progressed over the last few years or, and I'm still trying to wrap my head around what exactly happened between 1997 and 2003, because your resume says that you have a BS in biology and then the most complementary degree, which is a BS in aeronautical and astronautical engineering. Astronautic yes. engineering. And then in addition to that, in the middle of this period where you were getting your bachelor's, you were also a full-time engineer at NASA. So can you try to explain how in the world does somebody have a biology degree, is a NASA engineer, and also is getting an aerospace degree at the same so, time? Uh,
1: that's a good question. Um, so first of all, I wasn't a full-time engineer until after I graduated. Uh, I did mm-hmm. a co-op. Uh, At at NASA Johnson, and I I think that that Purdue still has a co-op program. Okay. Uh, So I would alternate semesters working and going to school.
0: Okay. Uh,
1: And then, as for the biology degree, uh, there there is an official story. uh, It that revolves around uh, uh, wanting to to pursue bioengineering in a way that uh, I couldn't do through the bioengineering department. Um, Mm In reality, I thought it was interesting, and there were some people in the class that I liked hanging around with, um, okay. and and so it seemed like a good idea at the time.
0: So, so if I understand correctly, you came to UIUC. You mm-hmm. went to some, I'm assuming, introductory bio classes and were, had an interest in bio. And yes. then just decided this is cool and decided to get an entire degree in it while also yes. doing aerospace engineering. Yes. So that that sort of leads me into my next question. Since you have formal education in both fields, uh, you know what kind of facts, like from each field do you have in, like if I asked you for an interesting tidbit from each one, like which which facts would you would you pull out of the hat? Oh,
1: well, um, so my my interesting bio fact, actually, i don't I don't know if it's still true. Maybe somebody on the call has has carried on the research more than I have. Mm-hmm. Um, But viruses are very interesting things. Uh, and and the, the research that I was doing at Burke actually, uh, which I got into because I had a biology degree and an engineering degree, uh, mm-hmm. was to look at some of the nonlinear mechanics of virus capsids. So okay. the structure of a virus is really simple. They're like an egg. They have a shell, uh, which is made out of protein. Mm-hmm. And then at Usually at one of the vertices of the of the capsid, there's a, a special protein that packs nucleic acid into the center of the capsid. Right. Um, but the, the challenge is the persistence length of DNA is extremely long. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's much longer than the diameter of most virus capsids. Mm-hmm. And so the challenge, the question is, how does that work? You know, how can you stuff something that has a persistence length of microns into something that has a diameter of nanometers? Mm-hmm. Right. It's, it's like shoving a steel cable into a water balloon. It it should just go straight through the other side. Um, right. And it's very difficult to model those things a priori. And it's right. really neat that we actually uh, address that physically with an AFM.
0: So okay. that was cool. I'll, I'll, I think I've seen this poster actually on the wall that talks about this nonlinear AFM on, on biological samples. So it's by the kitchen, everyone. <laughs> If you want to uh-oh. go and look at these posters,
1: <laughs> um, um, can I assign homework? You guys uh-oh. need better posters. If that's if that's still there from when I was there, you need to put up new stuff.
0: Yeah, the, we 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 have one of the longest running experiments in ink stability, uh, maybe in the country right now. <laughs> Black ink turns green after fifteen years, <laughs> um, and then from aerospace, like what what kind of uh, fact have you found over time that? like fascinates you.
1: Uh, um, just one, just so. So uh, the most interesting fact uh, is that anybody who tells you that they understand what's happening inside an operating rocket combustor is lying.
0: Okay, so it's like quantum mechanics.
1: Uh, it's just a whole lot of stuff going on and it's hard to keep track.
0: Yeah, I, I heard that actually, to, to jump ahead, I, now that you work at Rocketdyne, I heard that um, the original F-1 rocket engines for the um, Apollo missions, they have this plate inside that has holes in it that allows the fuel to come into the combustion chamber. And the, there's basically this combustion instability that can put out the the flame if it, if it becomes problematic. And the way they yep. solved it was by drilling tons of holes into these plates in different patterns to try to get the right pattern. And then they happened upon one that works but nobody knew why
1: and uh, that's that's partially true so mm-hmm. uh, it's an acoustic instability in the f1 and so mm-hmm. you know combustion chamber is just as you can think of it as a cylinder that's sort of squashed on one end
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, you're releasing huge amounts of energy into it right, right. so like things it has vibrational modes uh, right. and it has radial modes and tangential modes and longitudinal modes mm-hmm. and in the f1 they had a particularly bad, uh, acoustic mode. Uh, and they were able to break it up by putting baffles in the injector face uh, to prevent a transverse wave from crossing the injector face. It bounces off the baffles instead of bouncing off the chamber.
0: Right. Um, so that way it doesn't start ringing like a bell and then exploding. That's, yeah. It's, what's, what's crazy to me is that people were able to do this before computer modeling, like that it was all done sort of by hand. That's just the craziest I, part.
1: I of I all was. It was done by trial and error. They had yeah. a number of test stands operating simultaneously because they figured one would always be in a state of repair after being damaged from an engine incident.
0: From a, from a rapid uh, unscheduled disassembly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, okay, so to go back sort of to, to uh, undergrad. So, mm-hmm. so now we know why you chose biology. It was just, you like the people, the topic was sort of uh, very interesting to you. And uh, it mm-hmm. sounds like you were mostly very interested, in, sort of, in viruses and uh, in, in this type of thing in particular. Um, or was there something oh. that you did as your research back then that was different from that?
1: No. So my research as an undergrad uh, was in neuroscience. Okay. So we were we were studying uh, a phenomenon called long-term plasticity, uh, mm-hmm. which is, you know, right. neurons can grow and they can change and they they grow in response to stimulus, right? So right. if you have, for example, a uh, motor neuron right and you you execute the same motion over and over and over again that yeah. neuron will grow to reinforce that motion right um, and so that's you know that happens in in your body and it happens in your brain too it's called motor cortex learning. Mm-hmm. It's a very closely related phenomenon called long-term plasticity where if you have a neuron that you stimulate artificially with electrodes say mm-hmm. uh, you, can, you can get that neuron to grow in a particular direction. And the interesting okay. thing is, after a while, it stops being able to grow. Okay. Once it's learned, learned, it's, uh, it's, it's, then it becomes plastic and, and no longer returns back to its original state. It gets stuck. And so the question was, uh, is long-term plasticity related to motor cortex learning? Uh, do the neurons grow in the same way? Do they get stuck in, in the same way? Uh, yeah. Is that phenomenology consistent with the two different of stimulation? So you know, like all good undergraduate research projects, uh, my job was mostly to do the things that the graduate students did not want to do, uh, which involved a lot of training rats.
0: So what did the training rats uh, <laughs> You're just pushing them through mazes to get
1: oh, them to? Pushing them through mazes and across obstacle courses and feeding them pellets if they touch. So uh,
0: was there, and then? Obviously, sort of in your career, you decided to go uh, along the aerospace r- uh, route. Did the RAT training experiences have an impact on your enthusiasm for biology in the end? Or was it more that uh, rocketry interested you far no, more than biology? It,
1: it may have been good training for management. Um, the, the engineering, I think, was more interesting uh, than the biology. Um, mm-hmm. And it, it was a lot that when I finished my co-op as an undergrad, I uh, at okay. Johnston Space Center and so it took job full-time then as a uh, flight controller for the space station
0: okay so I guess we'll get into that uh, yeah I guess we can just go to that so how so you became a full-time engineer at NASA from 2000, well I guess in 2002 you became a full-time engineer after you graduated I assume correct uh, so you became a full-time engineer and you worked there for a year so what what does that job what did that job look like
1: for- Um, so the the space station at the time, NASA was flying the space shuttles and the space station. Now they just have the space station, Um, Mm -hmm. but the space station is is obviously time and it has crew full time, and so Mm -hmm. there's an entire group of people on the ground in the control room who monitor all the space station systems. Uh, So you can see them on, you know, NASA TV. There's a a flight director and a bunch of people watching data on consoles Or Mm -hmm. you don't each one of those people at a console has a whole room of people behind them. Who are watching okay. even more. And so, you know, you might have one uh, life control systems officer in the front control room, and that person has two or three people in the back who are watching more data.
0: Oh, wow. So which part of the data were you uh, watching?
1: Uh, it's called ECLSS, Environmental Control and Life Support Systems.
0: Okay, so I'm assuming all these articles about all these uh, little holes that are appearing in the uh, in the space station right now are probably probably making you think, I am so glad <laughs> that I don't have to deal with this.
1: Uh, they are they are, the most professional and the highest trained people in the industry. The astronauts could not be in better hands.
0: Right. Yeah, it definitely seems like they're doing a great job. But I imagine that the stress levels must be much higher than normal.
1: Uh, uh, it's, it's always a high stress job. But okay. Yeah, yeah. Yes. No, what what right. about that
0: job stressed you out the most?
1: Uh, well, you're you're the person responsible for keeping the crew alive. OK, and you're the one watching, you know, not just things like oxygen concentration, but you're watching, you know, power draw to fans, making sure there's not a short circuit watching water levels, watching carbon dioxide levels, making sure the carbon dioxide recycling unit works properly. Okay. Uh, you know, everything everything the crew needs to eat, sure. breathe and and survive is the responsibility of Equus.
0: So I don't know if, if you're allowed to say but what was the most like like interesting or terrifying thing that happened cuz i'm assuming a good day is where everything basically stays the same nothing changes yeah. and you're just like good you know everything's fine so were there any incidents while you were doing this? No. okay that's that's good <laughs> so so okay so now so you were at nasa you, from 2002 to 2003 so now, you obviously decided to come to Purdue to become a Boilermaker. So how did, that, how did that happen?
1: Like a, that was, why,
0: why leave NASA? Why come to Purdue? A, that's
1: a family decision, actually. Uh, okay. My fiancé at the time uh, got mm-hmm. accepted into medical school at IU. Okay. And, uh, we had the conversation, and she said, you know, I'm, I'm going to Indiana. Um, I'd like yeah. you to come with me. What do you think? And so we moved to Indiana.
0: Okay, uh, okay. So that, yeah, that's that. That definitely explains that choice. And uh, I guess if you want to do space things in Indiana, there aren't many places better than Purdue to do that.
1: Purdue, Purdue is a is a gem. It's a it's a really fantastic institution, and it's a good place to get your career start. So okay. yeah, was kind of a no brainer at the time.
0: Yeah, yeah. So you, you go, you came and I see that you came into your master's of engineering as compared to doing a direct PhD or, um, was there, so how did, how did you pick your advisor? Uh, how did you pick sort of the research area you wanted to go into, um, and, and what, what prompted these decisions, right? Cause that's a big, big step to go.
1: It was, um, and a lot of it was predicated on, you know, sort of practicality, you know, mm. the, uh, the uh, question of what what professor to work for was very strongly colored by which professors had positions available and had funding um, okay it was a very so what did strong... the landscape
0: look like when you were applying like what what who were like your top let's say 3 professors and how did you choose uh, uh, i didn't
1: have, i didn't have top 3 professors i came in fairly cold
0: you came in fairly
1: uh, what cold Fair, fairly cold yeah yeah uh, I didn't, I didn't have any professors, you know, ideally picked out that I wanted to work for. Right,
0: um, right. Well, what I so mean they, is is that I, I assume after some point you narrowed it down to a certain mm-hmm. set. So out of the set that you narrowed it down to, um, how did you choose? Um,
1: well, my, my set got narrowed down to one fairly quickly. Uh, okay. That was, that was Professor Raman in the mechanical engineering department, Arvind Raman. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he had funding available and he had a project that required someone who could sort of speak biology because he was collaborating with the structural biology department uh, okay. and someone who could speak engineering because it was a nonlinear non-linear dynamics problem
0: okay uh, i see so, so basically were... your your masters in mechanical engineering was focused on like the nonlinear dynamics of, of in bio i see and so then you've done you did your masters degree and then obviously uh, you know your whole career after Purdue is involved aerospace so I'm assuming your PhD and I think your thesis was titled uh, uh, it was a focus of combustion research mm-hmm. so how did how did you make that jump and decision right because it's it, it's like a, it's like I'm seeing like an interesting like there's like a, a almost like a, a two-state system right it's like bio aerospace yes. bio aerospace mm-hmm.
1: Um no, so I, you know, I had never, uh, I had never worked with an AFM or in at the nano scale before. So that was really interesting for quite a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I, I like I said, my master's project involved working with the structural biology department on these virus capsids. Yeah. Um, and you know, like many experiments, it had its challenges. And one of the biggest challenges that we faced cropped up right at the very end. Uh, mm-hmm. I had my thesis written. I was ready to submit it. Uh, oh. The data made very little sense. Um, virus capsids should be structurally perfect, and my stiffness yeah. plot was bimodal. I had two peaks, um,
0: okay.
1: which was really weird, and we couldn't explain it. Mm-hmm. And I, I probably spent a good three months um, digging through the biology and contacting various you know, biology professors and reading a bunch of papers. And yeah. what I discovered was really unfortunate. Um, we discovered that the protocol that our uh, our team had used to create the virus capsids was flawed. Oh, and that no. instead of creating uh, copies of perfectly icosahedral empty virus capsids, we had made random denatured protein blobs.
0: Oh, uh, that's terrible.
1: So, you know, some of the experimental experimental methods that we developed to attach these things to the mica substrate were still valid, but right. the point of the research was now useless um, right and so, so that was a that was a very disheartening experience um, and it, it led to a number of conversations uh, between my advisor and myself um, some of which were quite frank uh, and and at the end of that you know I decided that it was really time to move on and look at, at new things and and see what other uh, fun and exciting stuff was at Purdue to go and do right. rather than go the beginning and repeat four or five years worth of the experiments again right um, uh, and so well, so this, so I, this is I actually
0: a, a really like I know a lot of people like definitely graduate students have been in very similar positions so mm-hmm. if we go back because the problem is like you know now we see you as a, a very successful person in in you know in your life how did you uh how did you end up you know, dealing with this kind of failure? And what did you, I guess, more importantly, back then, like when you started this bio degree, what was your goal? Academia? Did you want to, you know, become a biologist? Because you, you had these discussions with your advisor, which I'm assuming are about your future sort of as a career. So what was, like, if we go back to 2003, 2004, when you're writing your thesis, what was your, like, dream job?
1: Uh, well, so 2003, 2004, I was still in the middle of collecting data. So right. if I go to 2005 where I had the data and I'm writing the thesis and I've now discovered that the, the substrate is is bunk. Um, yeah. You know, the conversation really was not yet about, you know, what career do you want long term? It was more what are we going to do to salvage the project? Right? Yeah. The, professor, the professor had you know, sufficient funds to repeat the experiments and and you know the conversation was, are you interested in repeating them? And I felt yeah. at the time that I was going to get nothing out of repeating the experiments. That there was no benefit to my education, uh, and there was very little benefit to the point of the project. There were other research groups that we were working with that did have success, and yeah. so you know there were there were there were other efforts that were going to come along. And so we decided that it was at the end not a worthwhile thing to go and do.
0: Okay. Uh, and okay. so and was that something you decided? like talking to your advisor, or was it more of like, you came to this realization and we're just slowly like, dude, I'm not doing.
1: He and I (laughs) reached that conclusion together.
0: Okay, so it was just back and forth saying like, you know, basically your goal was to gain more skills and to learn more uh, about things in general, rather than repeating the same techniques over and over again, you know, just to get a result right okay so so you have these discussions with the advisor and now how did you at some point you had to tell him basically like i'm leaving your group you know good luck Mm -hmm. uh how did that go how did you do it uh are Um, you on (laughs) it
1: it certainly didn't go well uh you know that's an awkward conversation to have with anyone um you know and and I'm sure everybody on the phone is aware the relationship between a student and an advisor is complicated. you know in yeah. a lot of ways, it's, it's like a parent uh, in another set of ways, it's like a spouse. you know mm-hmm. you're you're intricately linked with this person um, academically and intellectually for your whole career. Uh, and mm-hmm. so severing that relationship is hard. Um, okay. and and there's a there's a strong lesson learned there, I think. You know, and one of the pieces of advice that I give to uh, undergraduate graduate students when I encounter them, I tell all my interns this at work, uh, is when you are thinking about going to graduate school or you're thinking about an advanced degree, don't look at your advisor for what they do, look at your advisor for who they are and how they work. Mm-hmm. relationship is so much more important than the project. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, you can you can find interesting things to do in 99 out of 100 labs at a university there's yeah. there's no shortage of, of fun and interesting and engaging work um mm-hmm. what's a lot rarer and a lot more difficult to find is a engaging and fun and supportive advisor um, yeah and, and it's not it's not to say that some advisors are bad i think all the advisors are good but sometimes the match isn't there
0: right right yeah i i guess from like my background right I actually have two advisors and it's fascinating to me to see how different they are in how they approach their work how they approach you know certain problems so completely like they have almost diametrically opposite approaches to work and it's yeah like I I definitely agree with you it's your advisor that relationship is unbelievably important yeah and so so now you've You've told uh, your advisor, you know, I'm I'm not going to keep doing this. So now, you know, you're at Purdue. So how did the the next uh, step happen,
1: right? Um. So uh, I went home, and I went to the library website, and I downloaded in bulk all of the papers that the Emmy professors had written in the last five or ten years. Okay. And I just started reading. hmm And I had a few. I had a few really simple rules because. At the time, I'd already been accepted into the PhD program. I'd already uh, yeah. uh, passed my area exams, right? So yeah. it was literally just do the, do the dissertation, the prelim, final. Uh, and right. so I was sort of way into the PhD process. Mm-hmm. Um, so I didn't want to lose a tremendous amount of ground, but I did want to find somewhere where I felt like I could contribute and where there was a real need and uh, you know, where I wouldn't have four or five years of catch-up work to do. So right. in reading these papers, I had a, had a few fairly simple rules. You know, if I read the abstract of a paper yeah. and I was so bored that I couldn't read anymore, I would discard that entire professor's stack.
0: Okay. Well,
1: that's... if if there were symbols in the in the abstract that I didn't understand, right? Mm-hmm. Or that I'd never seen before, that whole stack goes away. Um okay. if, if I read the paper and I got a very strong sense of this is this is research that is is not uh at, there is no potential for this to be useful to help anyone then that okay. professor's stack would go away and, okay, okay and with a couple of really simple things in mind it was pretty easy to narrow it down to three or four professors and i went to go talk to them mm-hmm. um, and the, i approached a professor in the mechanical engineering department and and he was a brilliant advisor and and I wanted to join his lab, and yeah. uh, as part of the conversation, he said, "You know, I've I've listened to your story. Give me a week. I'm going to go talk to all of your professors. I'm going to review your grades, uh, mm-hmm. and I'll I'll come back and tell you what I think." Yeah. So a week later, I went back to his office, uh, and and he said to me, "Mo, I I have to be honest. I don't think you're a good fit for my lab." Okay. Uh, I took your transcript. Uh, you don't have enough math background. You don't have mm-hmm. enough computer science background. Uh, I don't think you are a. Um, I don't think you're a fit. Uh, yeah. And he says, but I did talk to all your professors, and all of them said very nice things, and they all said kind of the same thing. And I, based on those conversations, I don't think you're a theorist. I think you're an experimentalist. Mm-hmm. And I had never considered that. That was that was new information to me. Um, okay. But. Professor Merkel took all of the initiative to go find that out and really try and understand what kind of a student I was. Yeah. Uh, and he then actually pointed me to the Aero Astro Department and said, you need to go talk to Professor Anderson and Professor Heaster. They yeah. do the experiments that I model in my lab. Yeah. Uh, and I happen to know they have a research program open. They have a spot open and they have a project that's funded that needs a PhD student. Oh, wow. And so that's how that that's that match got made right so you know it was a case of i had done my half of the work to really sit down and find out what i thought would be interesting and engaging and what i would be good at yeah. and professor merkel who eventually did become one of my advisors yeah. uh did, did his half of the work um, and then put me in touch with professor anderson who became my primary advisor okay. so wow it, it was a, a very strong piece of you know a lot of honesty and a lot of communication led to a, a really awesome experience i had a fantastic experience as a phd student
0: yeah yeah the, the, actually i had a, a pretty similar uh, actually thing happen to me whenever i was graduating from undergrad i was thinking about going into applied mathematics i actually have degrees in physics and mathematics and my academic advisor was like dude like you should totally go to engineering because you love to build stuff <laughs> Like, go apply there, right? Like, clearly. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, now I, I work in, like, optics and like, micromechanics and things like this. And so it's you get to use it both. But it's a much better fit than just pure math. Uh, so so now we, we kind of go, we found your advisor through, basically, okay. you had a Purdue Guardian Angel uh, that, that helped you kind of get this position. Because these people in your life, they change your life, you know, so much like you're, the whole direction of your life changed basically from from this so you go you do your phd so what is like a, if we go back in time what's a day in the life look like
1: uh it was a lot of um mechanical design and analysis uh, finite element analysis on a combustor uh, mm-hmm. a lot of catching up on, on theory um, mm-hmm. The experiment was actually in heat transfer, and it was it was part of a, a larger study that was funded by NASA to collect CFD validation data. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was, you know, understanding what does the funding agency want, and and why are they collecting this data? Because that impacts how I collect the data, um, right? And then the 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 actual operation of the test was was uh, quite stressful. We had to get the test facility set up. Um, the, the high pressure lab out at Purdue at Zucro Labs out by the airport mm-hmm. uh, is a really sophisticated place to be. Um, it took me about 18 months to set up my experiment and we collected yeah. all the data in one day. We okay. ran all the hot fire tests in in one marathon session
0: uh, okay.
1: because it's you know, one of those experiments where it takes you forever to get everything set up. Uh, yeah get all the sensors working just right and get all the instrumentation working just right and get the computers working just right. Uh, yeah. Make sure nothing leaks. You know, because, you know, you, you get to that point 17 times and then every time something happens and you can't proceed. And right. so it's like just on the beach every time you get closer. And then one day when everything is is right and working properly, then it works and then you just keep going.
0: Yeah, until so you get the results. So, yeah, that's... How so? Like these types of experiments, they're very tough because it's an experiment. Like you don't know the result. So how do you keep yourself motivated and focused, right, on the task at hand, right? Because it's it's that's like a really tough thing to do, right? When it's so much like prep work with no result, like because it's over a year, right, of just constantly trying to build this thing, and then you don't know if you put it on the test stand, it just doesn't doesn't do anything, right? Or uh-huh. completely off, and then you unpublishable, right? So how do you yep. how do you keep that doubt at bay? Uh,
1: well, I think you? I think that's I think that's that's the the primary benefit that STEM students have over other students, right? Mm-hmm. And that scientists and engineers have over really anyone else ever. Um, yeah. We have a gift. We have an arbitrator of truth that no one else has, right. you know. Uh, you know the, the 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 rocket engine doesn't care what my spreadsheet says. It doesn't care what my math said. It doesn't care what the analysis said. It obeys the laws of physics. And yeah. when you combine the propellants, it will catch fire and it will do what it's going to do. And yeah. that's a terribly exciting thing, right yeah. when when you, you get to appeal to reality to give you an answer, right? right? It's not the same it's not the same as defending a thesis. Right, you go in front of the committee and you defend, and that's not reality. That's the opinion of four people. Right, right. One of them could be having a bad day or missed their coffee that morning, and so you have a bad reality that day, uh, or you have a bad experience that day. But you know, when you're in the lab, you know, or you're on the test stand and you you get to run a test, physics never has a bad day. It's always perfect, and that's a that's a fantastic feeling when you know. You get to see data for the first time. Um, it's like a drug. Once you, once you see it and you get hooked on it, it never leaves you.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I definitely know what you mean. Because there is something that is so satisfying about doing all this work and then mm-hmm. sort of bending these laws to, to your will. It's a very kind of mm-hmm. crazy feeling when it actually works. The problem is, the problem is that on many days, it does not work. So how, how do you that's deal not,
1: with... That's not physics's fault.
0: No, it's not. That's the, your... What I mean is your like, there's an issue, right, with your design. So how do you, mm-hmm. like, let's say, you know, you go and you do the experiments. just all these setbacks, right? How do you, how did you keep yourself motivated to keep going,
1: right? Uh, Well, a lot of it is, you know, the stubborn desire to finish, mm-hmm. right? Stubbornness plays a big part. Um, not wanting to quit is a big part of it, um, and then you know you work on a on a large team at a at a place like the Hyperestra Lab. There is no single player. You know, there's okay. a team of undergraduates and a team of master students and a team of PhD students and postdocs that are all working together. And so, just because one hot fire test goes badly, there might be six others that are going well. You know, okay. or you might have had a setback on your project, but yeah. you're your partner has had a series of successes on theirs. And so you you do get to see, you know, victory and progress happening around you. Um, mm-hmm. It's tremendously motivating, right? When you can work on a team and the people on your team are successful, you know, yeah. a lot of that reflects back on you and, and makes you more successful. And that's true in life too.
0: Oh, that's, yeah, I, I definitely feel that a lot because it's like my work has been very, very solitary um, and so you know, it's like if stuff doesn't go well, there's no there's no other person doing this. so it, it's like on fire and it doesn't work, and nobody knows why. Um, and so I'm always curious how people keep going right in like that kind of a situation. So, okay, so you you make it through all the setbacks, you get all your data, you write the thesis, you're getting ready mm-hmm. to graduate, right? you got the diploma in hand. And now you're walking down the aisle, what? what is the dream sort of job like when you're doing your PhD like did you want to go into academia did you want to go back to like government lab type work or or was the dream always to go into the like commercial sector
1: Uh, the the dream at the time was definitely to go into industry Uh, okay and that and that was so when when I got closer to the end of my PhD I did have a lot of conversations with uh, all of my advisors about, Mm -hmm. you know, what do you want to do with your career? Because if you want to go into academia, we need to change your project to get more publications, right? Publish more papers. Um,
0: OK.
1: But if you want to go into industry, we're going to we're going to give you a project that's a lot more related to the types of projects you'll get in industry, which is get things done, get the data and move on. Uh, It's it's more of a you are part of a much larger machine and and you have to be. Uh, able to deliver your product on time, uh, which is something that industry really values. Uh, And so I I said I wanted to go into industry. And so I got a project that was part of a very big research program uh, Mm -hmm. at at multiple universities. And I only got one paper out of it, but the data set as a whole is is vastly useful uh, to somebody like NASA.
0: Okay. So Mm -hmm. how did you broach this subject with your advisor. Like, did you did you go into like how, like I guess did you go to the office and just say, hey, look, like what's going on? Like, how did how did you bring it up? Right,
1: I didn't. He did. He okay. You know, we had we had weekly meetings, and and he said, uh, hey, you're going to graduate one day. What do you want to do? Okay. It was a very straightforward conversation. Uh, yeah, it's, it seems know, like and, the
0: whole Aero Astro department is just a lot of people who. Like look at the future, and, and just like hey, you got you got to get out, uh, that, gotta get a job. Gotta... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: The the whole field of, of aerospace engineering is is very, uh, I think, to its detriment sometimes is is blunt, um, mm-hmm. and part of that is because I don't think aerospace engineering is any harder or any more difficult than any other field, but it's horrifically unforgiving of mistakes. Right. You know, if you go. You go into automotive engineering and your analyst has made a mistake and your left control arm breaks right or the tire pops or you know yeah. you blow a head gasket your car makes a loud noise and you pull over to the side of the road and the engineers gather around and try to figure out what went wrong right? right when when that equivalent mistake happens in a rocket engine test you spend a month picking bits of shrapnel up out of the desert trying to figure out what went wrong right right and and it's very difficult to reconstruct what happened because your data system has been destroyed. You know. Uh right. and and so, your data you set know.
0: is literally in pieces and, all and over.
1: So the... Yeah. So you're, you know, busy trying to reconstruct files and you end up looking at the last few microseconds of a of a tattered data file, you know, trying to understand, you know, my pressure transducer was reading this here, and then it read 50 million PSI on the next data point. So that's clearly garbage. What about yeah. the one before that? Was that real or not real? And okay, you end up pulling your hair out trying to figure out what died first.
0: I, I would, I would love to actually. Like, I've always been curious how they kind of go back and figure out what broke in a plane, because like some planes mm-hmm. crash and they're like, oh, this particular bolt on this particular engine failed in mm-hmm. this particular way. And I've always been like, H- how? Like how do you, how do you figure that out from you know the shrapnel in the field?
1: Well, so so I have a a fun story about that, actually. Um, When I worked at SpaceX, we were testing uh, Merlin engines, which is their first stage boost engine on the Falcon rocket. Uh And we We had an incident, uh, which is a a very polite way of saying we had a very large fireball, and the engine went away uh, in the middle of it. and. You know, we we sent the technicians and the engineers out into the field and picked up a bunch of shrapnel and all came back in big boxes. Yeah. And we laid it all out on a big table. And, you know, a lot of it was not identifiable, but a lot of it is right. You can yeah. if you've if you've lived with the design for a year or two years, you can you can identify a, a broken piece as easily as you can identify a healthy piece. Right. And I found I found a tiny little fragment of my gas generator injector. and uh, it was made out of a particular alloy of copper that's a very specific color. It's a, it's a very light yellow um,
0: yeah.
1: and it's a combustion device, right? So it's full of soot and we have a couple of different types of combustion that we run in it. We ignite it with a, a pyrophoric liquid called TTAB. Um, mm-hmm. uh, uh, we have uh, LOX kerosene combustion that happens at different pressures, and low-pressure combustion is really light, fluffy soot, and high-pressure combustion really impacts the soot into the surface and bakes it on, so it's really thick black. And so, mm-hmm. you know, you take these pieces and you put them under a, a stereoscope, and you can kind of peel away, and you can see what order did things happen in, right? And so, you know, you start looking at stuff, and I was I was just looking around, and I found this this melted chunk of copper, and it had a glob on it. That didn't belong. It was a, It was the wrong color. It was a, a very dark, like a like a gunmetal gray melted blob.
0: Yeah. And
1: I said, "There's that doesn't make sense. How how does melted metal stick on this part? It doesn't make sense."
0: Yeah.
1: And so I took it back to California, back back here to Los Angeles, and I put it in a, um, a scanning electron microscope. We could do XRF analysis. So you had a little, you know, element analyzer. And the metallurgist just came back and said yeah this is this is not copper obviously it's it turns out it's an alloy called a286 uh-huh. uh and there's only one place on the engine where a286 exists and it's a bolt in the turbo pump it's the only place and so we said this is this is madness right how why is a a bolt that's sitting in cryogenic oxygen melting in the first place yeah. and if it's melting how is it getting to this part of the gas generator? They're in completely different parts of the engine. Mm-hmm. Um, if it happened after the fireball, if it happened after the disassembly, the bolt right. would have just fallen. You know? In order to make it to the gas generator, it had to flow through the plumbing. It had to flow through the feed line to get right. here. It was, if it was melted before it left, it would have started an oxygen fire and would have never made it. So right. it didn't melt until it got here. So it arrived here before it melted, and then right. it melted once it got here. Um, and we were then able to put together that that bolt had impacted the surface of the gas generator and started an ignition event, and that started the fire. Okay. And once, once you had that very first seed of a clue, now you have, a, now you have a, a, the equivalent of a hypothesis, right? You can go back and look at the data and say, OK, where do I see evidence that supports this or prevents this from happening? Right. Um, and I, I, have very clear memories of calling the turbo pump engineer, and I said, "Hey, Cam, go look underneath the the lock shim. You've got six A286 bolts there. I bet one of them is missing its head." And and I remember his response. He said, "Mo, that's nonsense." He didn't use the word nonsense. He was much stronger, but he said, "Mo, that's garbage. Um, those <laughs> that's those bolts was- are are snug down tight, and they're held in place." they're retained by this giant plate that's at the top of them and I said go look and so lo and behold they tore down the pump and as soon as he took the locks impeller off there was this giant mangled piece of of metal in there uh, yeah. and one of the bolt heads stripped out and had been rolled around inside the pump and been ejected through the feed system oh, and breaking. so well, it was a lot of that was luck right we happened Good. to find the right piece in the field and I happened to be the engineer that was looking at it um, yeah, a lot of it was still policy, right? The 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 technicians and the engineers knew that they needed to collect everything and look at all the hardware and get the hardware in the hands of the right people. So yeah. it was a lot of communication, it was a lot of teamwork, it was a lot of, you know, get the right person to look at the right piece of data at the right time to figure yeah. out what happened.
0: So I guess that that's so in their first interview with Professor Oppenzeller, they actually he talked about this that science is is sort of like being a detective in a murder. And yeah, basically for rocket engines, it's it's literally like doing autopsies after somebody's been murdered to try to find the I don't know, speck of dust that gives away the, the
1: clue. But that's and, incredible. And, and, yeah. The the failures don't have to be dramatic, right? You yeah. can you can try and, and actuate a valve and it it just clicks, it doesn't move. Right? or you can try and connect a sensor and it and it doesn't read right yeah. you turn on a power supply and it gives you the wrong voltage um you know i think there's a pessimistic way to view those things which is you know these are failures and these are setbacks and these are disheart um, i think a better way to look at it is to say i am engaged in a conversation with my hardware right, right. it is telling me what is this hardware trying to tell me right right it's, it's telling me the word it's using is bad voltage, or open circuit, or a leak, or why is the steel blue? It wasn't blue before, you know. Right, right. Um, you know why is this weird lump of melted goo sitting on my hardware? You know. Yeah. How did grease get from this point to that point? Why is the soot white? You know s- s- things that things that no textbook is going to teach you to look for. Right? right. And and if you open yourself to, I'm having a conversation with my with my work and with my hardware, then it's a much more rewarding thing when you finally figure it out and you start listening to it and right. it will start listening.
0: As, as somebody who has a car that has over 200 something thousand miles on it. I, yeah, it's definitely a conversation. <laughs> so, cause yeah, it's all kinds of like little things. You hear that one little sound that wasn't there before and you're like, Oh, that's not good. <laughs> it's, Anyway, and I'm sure at some point you get an instinctual feel for when something is not right, even if everything looks okay. Like in one case, I I was driving my car down the highway and I felt something was wrong with it. And when I went to go push the brakes, it turns out the bolt on the caliper retaining thing actually had fallen out while on the freeway. And I somehow knew this but I didn't know why. I just felt something was wrong. But I immediately knew what the problem was because it happened before. Long story short, never, ever, ever, ever put anti-seize grease on the head of a bolt. It is, like, on the end. It will come off on the highway. (laughs) Okay, so if if you learn nothing else from this podcast, don't do that. Um, So that, I guess, brings us to, like, the next kind of big jump, which is SpaceX, right? I'm sure everybody here is heard of spacex so obviously we have to ask the question how many times Mm -hmm. have you met elon musk is he as a number of uh, i mean the media portrays him as some kind of like you know genius um what is he like in person right
1: um elon is very driven he's very passionate and he's very smart Mm -hmm. um he's also uh very much uh uh, he has very high expectations of the people he works with and of himself and of the people who work for him. Yeah. Um, so it's it's very clear when you work there that we are. We are doing this because we're going to Mars. That's the point of of all of this work and okay. you know we can we can sleep when we're dead kind of mindset. Um, and so it's a it's a a very fast paced, very hard work environment. Um, Okay. You know, probably the shortest week I ever worked there was 80 something hours.
0: Okay. So they.
1: Yeah. And Mm -hmm. so I
0: see, I think if I remember correctly, you were doing combustion research at SpaceX. Um, So I guess you mentioned the Merlin engines. So that whole process of figuring out how the engine exploded, how long did that take? Because I'm I'm assuming at a normal company, that can take a very long
1: time. Um, Well, it it depends. at, at SpaceX, that took uh, maybe a week and a half to oh do. Goodness. Yeah. Um, so,
0: where, where was the test and, facility, and, out of curiosity? It's in
1: Texas. Okay, in so, Rico, Texas. Okay, so it was Look already right.
0: at the Texas place, the Texas uh, site. Yeah. Okay, so, and then you mentioned you flew all the way to California to get this done. So within one week, so at the beginning of the week, something exploded, and by the end of the week, you're flying to California to do mm-hmm. metallurgy okay so it sounds yeah. like a very high speed <laughs> place
1: well we, i mean we we would often work even faster than that you know wow. we would often have run a test in the morning have a failure have a meeting discuss what happened while the technicians were disassembling the engine uh get the analysts and designers in california spooled up to start looking at you know what what could have gone wrong yeah. and then have a meeting in the afternoon when we get the hardware from the engine and say okay well we had this and this and this and this and this theory. We can discard six of them because okay. you know we we had this new finding, this new data that came in.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, and then you know once you know what really happened, the fix is usually pretty straightforward. Right. Uh, and so you have the designers stand by, and they've designed that part that afternoon. Release the drawing. It goes to the machine shop that night. Somebody drops it off at LAX at midnight. Catches the midnight flight from LAX to Dallas, and there's a technician waiting in Dallas to pick up the part. Oh my goodness, that's unbelievable! Wow, you know, and I think to understand some of that, you need to look at at you know, uh, and I'm I'm kind of glad this has come up. It's it's one of the big holes in my education. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's a hole in, in most technical people's education, which is what does the financial side look like, right? Yeah, as technical people, we spend a lot of time studying. Cycles and flows and boundaries and fluxes and you know what are the constraints on things, right? You can't just move energy wherever you want to in a system, it, it obeys but, laws. Um, right. You can't make a superconductor infinitely strong. There's there's physical limitations on flux that you must respect. And right. the same thing is true of money, mm-hmm. right? The flows of money are not are not similar to each other right? You can have private money, you can have government money, you can have grant mm-hmm. money, you can have contract money. Yeah. Um, and, and all of that money, you know, you can think of it as being different colors of money that all has constraints applied to it. Yeah. You know, some, like startup money has no constraints on what you spend it, or how you spend it or how you have to account for it. But it has a constraint on how much of it there is, right? Right. And so at a place like a startup, you know, you may have a seed round of a million or 10 million or 50 million or however much you have, but that's all you've got, right? right? Once, that, once that money runs out, everybody goes home, right? And right, the project right. ends and everybody goes under. So, you know, if you, have, you know if, you, if you know what you're paying your employees and you know what you're paying in rent, you know what your sort of cash burn rate is. And so yeah. the, the CEO or CFO, if they're good, will stand in front of you and will say, we run out of money on this date. You have to fix your problem before that date, go.
0: Okay, I'm I'm assuming a lot of that was happening at SpaceX. So
1: that was the mode that SpaceX was in at the time, right? There are other sources of money that aren't like that, right? Um, uh, Research money or government contract money, for example, is not really like that, right? You can have cost plus contracting where within reason, there's not a limit on how much money you can spend but you do have to account for every dime, right? right. And not only account for it, you have to predict where you're gonna spend it and on what, and you have to hit those targets. And right. so, you know, that type of a program you know, is a, a lot more akin to a NASA or an Air Force program, yeah. right? They don't, it's not that they don't care how much you're spending, they do, but it's much more important that you understand exactly how the money is flowing. And so, right. In, in order to really be successful in one place or the other, you also need to understand how you're funded and what the funding agency, whether that's a government or a company or a private individual, wants.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Right? To make sure you're hitting it, like that you meet the constraints placed by the, the resources available yeah. in terms of the um,
1: money. And and I didn't do it when I was a graduate student, uh, and I don't know how possible it is. But I would strongly encourage everyone in graduate school uh, to go take finance classes. Okay, Uh, have to go the full road of an MBA, right? I think that's probably overkill unless you want to be an executive of some kind. But you know, go take an introduction to finance and understand, you know, what are some of the terms that people throw around and. Sometimes technical people tend to uh, discount the constraints in, in finance or law even because they're not physical, they're not imposed by the universe, they're imposed by lawyers or politicians or a right. bureaucrat somewhere. So in some way, you know, I think we tend to, to assume that they're lesser constraints. Right. Um, and, and I assure you they are just as real, right? Yeah. In, in many ways, more real. Right. And it's a it's a real challenge.
0: It's very because it's very hard to build a rocket engine and nobody will pay you to do it. Mm-hmm. So so obviously, uh, I think the other thing we learned from Professor Appenzeller was, he said that um, you have to lead from the front if you want people to really kind of follow you. So he's like, he, he actually had a quote which is like, if I don't work you know, all these hours, how can I expect people under me to do it. Um mm-hmm. so that's the impression I guess you're getting from um like Elon Musk that he sort of leads from the front in that way and then that sets the baseline for everyone else.
1: He does. Um, he also really understands accountability very well. Um and he's very good at taking accountability himself personally for mm-hmm. the success of the Rockets and he's good at holding his people accountable for the success of the Rockets. You know, a good example of that, you know, before we launched Falcon 9 for the first time,
0: we Mm -hmm. had an all
1: hands meeting. And uh, that was when the company was small enough we could all fit in one sort of big room.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, All right. Everybody here knows our launch date is, you know, X weeks away, three, four, five, however many it is. Uh, All of you have a hand in making this rocket fly. The financial reality is if this rocket doesn't make it, we're in trouble, right? We have Mm -hmm. enough money. XYZ, but if the rocket doesn't make it, we're, we're going to suffer XYZ bad consequences. Mm-hmm. So here's my number. If any of you know any reason why this rocket won't make it all the way to orbit with its payload, call me and we'll mm. fix this.
0: Oh, right? wow. That's, that's... That's, a,
1: that's a fairly tremendous statement to make, not only to your employees, but to the world at large, right? That, that I am going to make sure that this works.
0: Okay. You know. Wow, that's uh, – I'm, I'm assuming that made a huge impression on everybody there. It did. Um, do you think he got any calls?
1: Oh, yeah. I know uh, did, he
0: did. Did you call him?
1: I have never called him directly. Okay. Um, I did. I, I have had a number of meetings with him.
0: Okay. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, like, uh, you know, somebody who is not in this world, right? It's very fascinating to me. So I, I, I could go on forever. But unfortunately, I think at some point we just like money, there are constraints of time. So we should probably move forward. So for the SpaceX, um, you left. Why? I did. Uh, if it was like, it sounds like you really enjoyed it. Um, but
1: I did. yeah, but... Um So so uh, I was actually very, very lucky. Um, not only getting to SpaceX, but my exit from SpaceX was, was largely luck as well. Mm-hmm. Um, excuse me, uh, the, the, uh, Virgin Galactic is a company that Richard Branson and Scaled Composites, uh, started together mm-hmm. and they had, uh, to build a space tourism vehicle and it was a mm-hmm. suborbital vehicle. It wasn't intended to go to orbit. It was just, you know, go up, hop and come back down. Um, right.
0: Uh, yeah, this is the little uh, plane uh, type mm-hmm. of rocket that yes. is it's carried by the I forgot the name of the larger plane that carries right. it.
1: Uh, so, the, well, what did you the plane's, say? Name is, the, pli- the plane's name is White Knight too.
0: Right. Yes. And then yeah. it's dropped for mm-hmm. I guess for people who don't know it's dropped yeah. from that. And then the idea is that the rocket plane takes off and goes up into the into suborbital space mm-hmm. where you can feel That's microgravity, true. and then yep. it comes back yep. down and and lands like a plane if i'm not mistaken.
1: It does. Yeah. It's a it's a cool very cool little vehicle. Yeah. Um, but sort of in the in the 2012 time frame they were having problems uh, with their propulsion system. They have mm-hmm. a nitrous oxide uh, rubber uh, hybrid motor mm-hmm. and they were having some issues with it that prevented them from continuing into commercial service. Right. And so the company had implemented a number of backup plans, one of which was uh, to abandon the hybrid and build a liquid rocket engine. Okay. And so uh, I got a phone call from them. Uh, I, I knew the person who was the, the vice president of propulsion and he invited me up to Mojave in the desert and they walked into a big empty hangar and he said, we have to build a liquid engine for Spaceship Two as fast as possible. Yeah. We, we have essentially unlimited funds. Right. Are you in? Do you wanna come do this? This is your, your playground. Yeah, um, That's, a, that's a, the kind of conversation that, that only happens once in your career, uh, yeah. and, and I, I definitely didn't want to miss out on that opportunity, so I said yes, um, okay. and so jumped over to Virgin Galactic, uh, which was sort of the complete opposite of the SpaceX experience. It was you know just a handful of people. There were four engineers when I started. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had no testing. It was a, a concrete slab in the desert. We yeah. didn't even have power. We didn't even have electricity or water. Uh, we okay. were on a generator and a water truck and outhouses in the desert. Very um, Los Alamos style. Very, very crude surroundings, uh, mm-hmm. definitely not the, the Emerald City that's Burke. Um, right. you, know, we, you know, I spent six years there and we built that team up from almost nothing to 500 people. What are they are now? Um, Oh, and wow. grew the rocket, and they 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 tried to launch attempt last year, and they're about to try again. So, yeah, know, it was you know just one step in front of the other, building systems and building teams and yeah, it was a great so, experience so
0: basically the the rocket engine in there has your fingerprints all over the design, basically
1: so uh, spaceship two ended up solving its propulsion problems
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, so they they fly their hybrid motor now, uh, okay, and the What started as the backup liquid motor for Spaceship was eventually spun off as a separate company called Virgin Orbit. Uh, Okay, that's that's
0: the the thing I want to ask is what is the difference between Galactic and Orbit?
1: Okay, so they have, I see. It's a spinoff as a separate company. Uh, Okay. And so Virgin Orbit is now not doing tourism launches. They're doing orbital satellite launches.
0: Okay. So uh, I'm assuming what the range of the market are they hoping to target?
1: Uh, they're definitely small satellites. Um, okay. I th- I think the small satellite market you can you can do a lot more research you know on your own. But there's there's a, a tremendous growth happening in that in that class of satellite now, sort of the 50 kilogram to 1,000 kilogram class. Right. Uh, and there's a lot of companies that are that are trying to put up these really huge constellations of small satellites. Uh, right. The most famous are Starlink and Kuiper. Right. right? Starlink is SpaceX's, Kuipers, Amazon's um, right, right. You know, but there's a number of others as well. Uh, and so you know it that they can use large rockets to deploy a fleet of satellites, but mm-hmm. satellites are not perfectly reliable, right? They fail periodically. And so you know a lot of the the fleet maintenance requirements are going to require launches of one or two satellites, not fifty at a time. Right. And so you know the the small rocket world is growing. Uh, very, very fast to try and meet that market. Um, the nano-satellite market, the cube-satellite market, you know, is, is getting quite big, quite lucrative.
0: Right, right. Mm-hmm. That, that's, yeah, I've, I've been seeing a lot more of these, like, smaller, I think, I forgot the name of all the companies, but there's a lot of them that are beginning to appear like mushrooms, you know, after a, a rain. Um, which yes. I, I, I guess it makes sense, right? Because, like, the the solar panel technology and the battery technology and the computing technology is most importantly is is finally allowing these like yes. really high functionality devices in orbit um, so what uh, I guess what is the biggest difference you saw sort of going from a four-person company in terms of management like how do you how did you grow as a manager right to deal with so many people because uh, I'm assuming that that
1: so i didn't manage everybody at the at the very end the largest group was about 40 people that i managed Um, and i think you know by and large people don't want management they don't want someone to tell them what to do they know what to do yeah right and if if you've done your job as a manager and as a leader uh your people won't need you right they they won't be sure that you've done anything at all um so a big part of that is making sure that that everyone on the team has a task, that they understand it, that they know when they need to deliver it, uh, that it's within their capability, that you know before they do when they're going to have challenges and be ready there with a solution to help them. Right? And that's could be here's a book. Here's the page you need. Here's a spreadsheet that I made to help you do the analysis. Here's a one sentence description of of where you've made your mistake. um, You know, and and. You know, not not all of those solutions need to happen before the failure occurs, right? right. They should happen before the expensive failures do, mm-hmm. but there is there is nothing that motivates a person than making a mistake and being able to recover from it and succeed, right? That mm-hmm. feeling of success is the best, the, the best motivation and the best leadership that a person can have. right? Okay. So, wow. You know, that's 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 I think the function of a leader is to really understand what your team is trying to do and to help them sort of self-organize to to divide up that work.
0: I see. OK, so your your view is that uh, as, a, as a manager and a leader, your job is sort of to grease the skids and make sure the skids are pointed in the right direction. Yes. <laughs> and then to just let everyone else do the like push, push along the the, the boat. It's, it's actually, this sounds a lot like, a, I'm surprised that it sounds a lot like what a good professor mentor actually mm-hmm. sounds like. That, you know, most PhD students are very motivated people. That mm-hmm. if you just tell them, go do this, you know, and then help them when they get overly stuck, you know, I think that's yeah. that's pretty you know, much yeah. ideal.
1: And that's true. And and I would have to say in, you know, 20 years of being a a Technical person, right? I've only met maybe maybe one or two people that was really just no good, right? Mm. That that there that this person was was truly useless and needed to leave the team, right? It's mm. been extremely rare, um, right? Almost everyone I've met has been self-motivated and excited and able to do the work and mm-hmm. really sort of engaged in learning. And the things that prevent them from doing that are almost all external. Yeah. Right. Um, I don't. I don't need to teach people how to be innovative. They're naturally innovative. Yeah. Right? I don't need people to be passionate. It, it helps that I work in rocketry, right? Rockets are a very passion-inducing device. Right. Uh, yes. A, a lock-in amplifier is not nearly as as sexy as a rocket. Right. Um, right. Right. Yeah. Know? Uh, it it helps when they're big and they're loud and they're dramatic and they make a lot of smoke and you know people get really excited about that. Um,
0: yeah, I think that's that's definitely that's something true. that maybe people in uh, in in Burke suffer from, right? Because it's like that comic on the wall that's like, uh-huh. no, it's there. I promise. It's just nano. Yeah.
1: yeah, but you know the the thrill that you guys get when you know when you're when you're in the lab at three in the morning and that perfect picture of a neuron comes through, yeah. right? Or or when you've made the, I don't even know what the fab world is at now, three nanometers, five nanometers. I don't know where the, the frontier is. Right? Yeah. When I was it was like thirty nanometers, right? That's yeah. that's what you the undergrads do now. Right. When you finally make that transistor that works on the, you know, at, at the you know, single atomic scale, or you know, you get that picture of an orbital, right? right. And you're yeah. the only one who has it, right? Yeah. Like people are naturally motivated to do that. The yeah. the part of the leader is to help them clear the hurdles that they can't see okay right
0: that's that's a yeah that's a whole i guess like what's nice about this type of thing is that this is more of a philosophy view of things rather than like if you read about management right it's all these like very overly specific things on how to kind of beat people into submission to do what they're supposed to do whereas you're saying people will do what they're supposed to do as long as they're not getting overly demotivated because they keep failing due to some factor that they cannot see themselves. So, exactly. so this that sounds like a good manager sounds like a really tough job because you have to understand your employees, you have to understand the work, and you have to make sure that you understand the dynamics of the team because if they get too discouraged by difficulties, that's uh, yeah. I think that's a tough thing.
1: You know, people will never remember the actions that you take they'll never remember what you tell them they'll never remember what you do but they will remember how you make them feel and they will remember that you helped them
0: yeah that's they true.
1: Help, but they will remember that you were helpful right yeah. and that's that's a that's a powerful thing if you want people to do stuff
0: so basically going back to what elon musk did when he was like you know call me that's a very sort of like this type of thing which is just like you know whatever obstacles. Like, I'm here to clear them. I, I don't care. Right. Yeah, yeah, so I see. So, okay, so after, you know, a very good you know, few years at Virgin uh, Orbital and Virgin Galactic, right? You have, okay. uh, or I guess it's in the reverse order, Galactic then Orbital. You're now at Aerojet Rocketdyne. How yeah. How and why? Um.
1: So I had reached a, a position in Virgin Galactic, or Virgin Orbit, uh, okay. where... You know, I was no longer doing technical work. I was the director of test operations, which meant that I sort of ran the test site and my whole life was schedule and budget and trying to keep the executives away from the engineers, right? Because right. the company had grown to the point now where it had executives, true, right. proper executives, not startup executives, mm-hmm. um, you know, and they're, they're wonderful people and, and they have uh, a real job to do and they're very valuable, but they yeah. have no business being in the control room. Right. Right. They have no business on site, um, and, and, it, and that job was was, uh, was becoming quite tedious, um, and then the second reason was, you know, we went to Virgin to develop a rocket engine and build a vehicle. And we did that, um, and it was pretty clear that, you know, the bulk of the development work had been done. And it's still not perfect, you know, they've still got challenges to solve, but now they're, they're you know, four nines or five nines percentile trying to solve their problems. Um, right, right. And, and the, the company took a direction where they said, you know, we're, we're really now going to focus on production and we're going to mm. focus on sales and we're going to focus on selling as many of these rockets as we can. Uh, and we probably won't develop a new rocket for quite some time. I see. And so for someone like me, you know, I do technology development professionally. That's what I really get excited about is what mm-hmm. new capabilities, can I bring that wasn't there before? What can I enable that wasn't there before?
0: Um, okay,
1: and and it was a good time to sort of start looking around for new opportunities. Mm-hmm. And Jersey Rocketdyne had a very cool one. Um, they had a missile defense program uh, mm-hmm. to build an interceptor uh, uh, for incoming ICBMs. Right. Uh, so we have, we have a fleet of rockets that that launch out of silos in the ground, uh, yeah. and they have. Interceptor vehicles on the top and if somebody launches a nuclear weapon at the United States we will launch these interceptors And they will go and and destroy the incoming warheads. Yeah, um, that's an extremely difficult challenge Right, right um, Getting a rocket into space is really hard. Anyway, operating a vehicle in space is very hard Hitting another one is darn near impossible, right? right? Um, and so, you know, I thought that challenge was was much tougher than anything i'd faced before and yeah. it was a, a chief engineer position so it was a good opportunity to go in take over a team um they had an existing program the chief engineer that they that they had had uh, had taken a new position in huntsville had mm-hmm. switched programs they had a hole in an existing program mm-hmm. uh, so it was a great opportunity to come in go fast learn how sort of the big kids in aerospace do it yeah. you know it's you know 10 years at spacex and virgin um, yeah. You know, sort of, sort of watching how the how the uh, startup and amateur rocket world does things,
0: um, mm-hmm.
1: to see how a, a mature defense contractor does things, and it's been a real education. Yeah. So
0: yeah. I guess the thing I'm like, from all this, like, because I know there's all this um, sort of criticism of ULA and Boeing and these larger defense contractors. Why do you <laughs> think they they move slower? Like, why, why do they move so much slower in terms of their, like, product development than, like, the, the smaller companies like SpaceX? Well, I guess SpaceX is becoming larger, but not nearly as large.
1: Um, or maybe it's a
0: misperception, right?
1: Uh. Well, so there's, there's a couple of reasons, and that's a, that's a very good question, and it has uh, no single right answer. Um,
0: mm-hmm.
1: I, think, I think speed of development uh, is, there's, there's probably a conservation law somewhere, right? speed and thoroughness and documentation and accountability are you know probably all part of some conserved variable right, right. so you can you can have two of the four
0: okay
1: um, I see and you know and uh, and so you you kind of have to choose how you want to move um, mm-hmm. so that's part of it you know mm-hmm. so at a place like SpaceX right if you're developing Falcon one or early Falcon 9s right,
0: yeah.
1: you are you are not holding design reviews for all of the changes that you make. Right. You're you're convening a meeting of yourself, your boss, the VP of propulsion, and one analyst. And that's it. Yeah. And you make the decision and he accepts his accountability and the VP says, Yep, go. Okay. Move on. Right. There's no yeah. documentation of that. And the company operates in such a way that they understand that failures occur. And when that happens, there's no blame that goes around. There's only Go fix it. Right?
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so it sounds like it operates very almost like a graduate research group to some extent, which is just like it can't.
1: If it's, if it's, it operates more like you would work in your garage, right? Yeah. Like if I, if I am building a, uh, I don't know, a chair in my yeah. garage, right? Yeah. I'm not holding design reviews. I'm not making drawings. I don't do analysis on the right. chair, right? And in doing so, I accept the risk that when I cut the fourth, it's too short that I'm gonna have to do it over, right? right. I just accept and there's no, there's no one except maybe my wife that I have to justify that to, right? right? But you know, on, on other situations, it's maybe different, right? Especially if you have shared resources
0: mm-hmm. or if
1: you are spending someone else's money, right? right. And you guys encounter this at work all the time, yeah. right? Particularly in the, in the clean room. You know mm-hmm. there are shared resources that no one professor controls. They're controlled by Burke, yes. right? And and if you walk in and you do and you do something truly boneheaded, yeah. right? You can you can render that equipment useless.
0: I am painfully
1: aware of this. <laughs> um, you know, I have a I have a, a thing on my on my wall at work that says every machine is a smoke machine if you operate it wrong enough. <laughs> right. <laughs>
0: That's a great quote. <laughs> I think that is the motto of of, of some users.
1: It is. And, uh, and so if you're, if you're in that boat, right, yeah. um, particularly if you're in a place where you're training new people all the time, like Burke, right, right you can't replace a million-dollar piece of equipment every year. Right. Because yeah. those students. you just can't afford to do that. And so right, right. you have to put controls in place to prevent bad things from happening because you can't afford it. Right, right. Those controls, you know, at a place like Burke are fairly easy for a handful of people to, excuse me, to understand and to manage. Right at the government level, right at the Air Force level at the NASA level, those controls are tens of thousands of pages of documentation. Right, mm-hmm. and they require thousands of, of contract administrators and lawyers and program managers to, to keep track of. Right. And that machinery has a huge amount of inertia and it's slow.
0: Right. Yeah. It reminds me of uh, at some point I worked at Boston Scientific and yeah, with FDA, it's like everything has just Mm -hmm. reams and reams of paperwork that has to be approved and checked and cross
1: checked and signed. There's a a, a real benefit that comes from that. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Look at aviation. Right. Look at the commercial aviation industry. Mm hmm. There are databases at the manufacturers, at the airlines, and at the FAA that tell you every single one. You can go, you can you can walk up as an inspector to an airliner, put your finger on a random piece of hardware, a turbine blade, a tire, a wheel, a pump, you name it. Yeah. Read the serial number of it, and you can find out very quickly where was it made? When was it made? Who made it? What was that person's training record? What instrumentation did they use to put it together? When was the torque wrench calibrated? Who calibrated it? Where is it now? When is it due for its next service? Right. Right. That fact. amount of bureaucracy gives you a wealth of information that you don't normally have. Right. Right. Uh, and so there's a value in it. There's a tremendous value in having that uh, that you don't get at a place like, you know, a startup where right. you know, if you're at a startup and you're building a, a device and Two years later, you need to find out, hey, how does this code work? And it turns out the person who wrote the code left two years ago for Silicon Valley and no one knows, right? Yeah. So, well,
0: and the painful thing uh, is sometimes they don't even have to it's leave. An
1: interesting, it's an interesting mindset. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you you mentioned earlier all these these startup rocket companies, right? Yeah. And I think um, to a certain extent they're they're all there and they're all trying to do great things and build rockets and new engines, which I think is pretty cool. Um, no, I think if a company really wanted to take over the world, they would they would figure out a way to keep track of person independent data. Right? Yeah. If you could keep what contribution was made by what person and what the limitations on that contribution are. And in a way that anybody can come in later and and really understand it, I think you'd be a long way to setting up 21st century engineering. You know, yeah. and things like are a great step forward in that direction. Git was a good step in that direction. We need the equivalent of Git for hardware.
0: So I think uh, we've been going for a solid like hour and a half. So uh, I think uh, the audience has asked a couple of questions. Um, okay. So I guess to wrap up uh, everything, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll ask some of the audience questions. So Rajni is asking, uh, how close do you believe your current career at Rock and Dine to be to your biology experience? Or how, how did it inform each other?
1: Uh, they don't. They're completely separate.
0: All right. Well, Rajan, you got your answer. <laughs> completely separate. Um, and then uh, I think Joy was asking. She was saying that the view you see physics and experimental works is fascinating. It sounds so loyal and never cheating. But what if its mind is so difficult to guess? Is it frustrating? Uh, the one that love. The one you love does not love you back. I think that the question is basically, how do you deal with just relentless failure, right? With, the, with these, like in physics, right? It doesn't care about your feelings; nope. it can just fail over and over again. And how do you deal with that kind of constant discouragement?
1: Uh, it's it's not discouragement. It's it's information. It's data that you're getting, right? Mm-hmm. Physics is telling you you are going down the wrong path. I told you last time, you're going down the wrong path. You're still going down the wrong path. Go this way. Don't go that way. Go this way.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Right. And so, you know, the challenge is to really listen, if you can, to what the physics is telling you. And if, if you, you know, you, you mentioned earlier that you can have an intuition about things. If you continue to have that kind of failure, it means your intuition is wrong. Yeah. Right. That's an extremely powerful insight that physics is giving you. Yeah. That's physics reaching into your mind, saying your image of what's happening here is incorrect. Mm-hmm. Right? That's a that's a hint that you need to go talk to other people or read more or find find a different path to go down. Right, but it it's is hard.
0: Like, yeah, like uh, I had some issues making the material right, and we spent literally years not able to make this stuff work. And we could not figure out what was mm-hmm. wrong. And it turned out that, like, we made an assumption about the purity of some gas flow somewhere. And that purity, it turns out, was just not good enough. And it's like a very background thing. And basically, if you talk to experts, right, they would never tell you this because we worked with a specific kind of material. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's just, you know, you just eventually you're, you have to just listen and think about things a lot if it doesn't work until you realize what's going on because I guess the reality never changes. And that, like you said earlier, that's the best part about being in science is that there's no way you can convince yourself of something that is not true. If you really look at your data and do the experiment correctly, like you just Mm -hmm. have to keep doing it and it will keep telling you, no, you can't just make it go away by by pretending, right?
1: And then once you've done it once you've done the wrong thing nine hundred thousand times and you do the right thing once, that feeling is indescribable.
0: Uh yes. a- I think I think I might have the record in work for most failed samples ever. I have I think over a thousand failed produced samples. <laughs> and then it took and then finally there was one. <laughs> and yeah, there's it's nothing it's it's impossible to describe. Mm -hmm. that uh, that feeling anyway so uh thank you so much for all of your time and it's been absolutely fascinating i mean i could keep going you know the rest of the afternoon but i think rajni is yelling at me that we're not supposed to go this long (laughs) um (laughs) but you know thank you so much and uh i I really hope that we can uh, stay in touch because it's been absolutely illuminating and an absolute joy